ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hey, listeners. I'm Rob Sachs, Managing Director of Podcasts at Foreign Policy. And this is Foreign Policy Playlist. This week, we're featuring a new series from Fearless Media. It's called Ukraine Stories, and it was created after the war in Ukraine began on February 24th. Now, each day, host David Green, formerly of NPR, interviews an everyday Ukrainian who's been impacted by Russia's invasion. Before we get to today's featured episode, here's David Green for a preview. Yes, I'm David Green, and I've spent years in public radio and have just co-founded a a new company called Fearless Media. And we're producing a show called Ukraine Stories. And it has a very simple premise. And that is we tell the story of the war in Ukraine one person at a time each day. And it is so aligned with, you know, something that's very important to me, this concept of that everyone has a story to tell. It's just a matter of of listening and finding it. I do not want to con- consider myself an expert in any way, but I do have a, a number of ties to Ukraine. I, I, you know, my own family roots going generations back, obviously, but are in Western Ukraine uh, around Lviv. I also lived in Moscow with my wife for three years and was the, the bureau chief in Moscow for NPR. And literally the first story I had to cover uh, when I got to Moscow was a presidential election in Ukraine. I returned a lot of times, both professionally and even, you know, personally, because my wife and I just found cities like Kiev and Lviv so wonderful and so welcoming and, and just loved the spirit. And I fell in love with this country, the food, the people, the energy, the fight. And then I ended up writing a book called Midnight in Siberia that was about a train trip across the Trans-Siberian railway. And, you know, while that wasn't Ukraine specific, it was focused on people. Every chapter was named after a person I met, you know, while traveling across Russia. And it just drove home this, this message to me that like wartime or not, you know, being in, in a misunderstood place that people know, but don't know, like Russia, you know, one way to help other people understand this country is just to meet people and listen to them and tell their stories. And, you know, that, that, that was so important to me. Like, I, I just hoped in, in writing that book and the journalism I did 
that just me being a curious, respectful traveler and meeting people and listening would help others kind of understand and process the world. Um, so, you know, I'm a, I'm a stranger in Ukraine, but it's also a country I love and have been to a lot. And, uh, you know, I'm doing what, what I've always really loved to do. Headlines are important. And I've been involved in, in news coverage for many, many years. And, you know, headlines are important. The news is important and always will be. But, you know, the, the way we describe this show is that headlines don't help us process the world. Stories do. And we were already talking about, you know, how could we serve an audience that wants to understand and process the world each day in a way that feels intimate, in a way that feels relatable, it's, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes where they just feel this personal connection to a person who is experiencing the news. Um, and so that was really the concept. And we've spent months talking about that and and building this out. And then, you know, the conflict and, and the war starts here. And I think we all looked each other in the eyes and, and said, this is a moment to, to really tackle this concept. I mean, if, if we are committed to saying that headlines don't help us process the world, but stories do, if we're committed to this idea that letting someone's story unfold one person each day and helping people process you know, all these events around this one person's life, this was the moment. I think what's missing sometimes in the moment, in the war as it's unfolding, is depth. I spent years covering big events, including conflicts. And of course, you tell stories that are, you know, three, five, seven minutes, and, and you dig, you know, you dig into a life. But you know, it, it feels, you know, in, in much of the content, you know, it's fleeting. It's like, here's a story about a fight in this town, or here's a story about this city under siege. And you might hear, you know, a voice for a minute or two. And then later, you know, maybe six months, a year later, there might be a documentary film that digs deeply into the life of a family. And we truly get this, you know, different kind of narrative experience that that draws us in and takes us there. You know, we said, what if we can create that kind of documentary narrative experience every single day? So as you're trying to process and understand this war, you know, you listen to some of these shows that we've done and, you know, people are talking about basics, you know, being in a shelter and figuring out, you know, how the hell to, to go to the bathroom when there are 200 people who need to use the same toilet. It's like someone sitting on their mother's lap in a car, terrified of what's around them. It's like spaces that are conceptually so familiar to, to all of us. It's just basic human emotion and basic human course of events in a day, of course, in a conflict zone, completely different. But I think that connection, you know, we can just lock people in. You attach yourself to someone's life it unfolds and we're doing this, you know, each and every day because this is a, a daily show. And I think that was the sort of convergence that we were trying to tackle with this show. One of the stories we told uh, on the show is about uh, a young woman named Svetlana Matash. Uh, she's 29 years old. She just had a birthday in April during the war. She is a yoga instructor and Polish language tutor. So she teaches uh, medical language, Polish medical language to Ukrainians. And, you know, I got to say that 
knowledge of medical language, um, sadly and tragically, becomes really important as you listen to, you know, these two episodes because she, you know, needs it to to save her life because what unfolds uh, in her story is absolutely shocking. Um, she ends up uh, leaving Kiev to go to her family's dacha, uh, you know, the, the family's little uh, summer cabin um, in Chernihiv region outside Kiev and, uh, you know, confronts Russians. There's a Ru- Russian occupation all through the area and the family and friends she's with try a, a pretty daring escape. And, you know, the, the, the drama and the sadness and pain here, it, you know, in, in listening to her story and doing the interview for this show, uh, it was it was stunning. There's a lot of loss and there's a lot of unexpected pain as she makes this escape and tries to escape this war. And, you know, one of the things I'll say about her story is that I I thought a lot about whether we were re-traumatizing her by asking her to retell this story, but you know, this this one thing sticks with me that she told us that she believes in our mission because she wants people to know what is war and what it does to people. And when she said those words, any doubts about whether we were doing the right thing melted away because I felt like we were doing something that she really believed in. She wanted her pain conveyed to people in the world so they understood the horror of this conflict. That was David Green, host of Ukraine Stories. And now here's today's featured episode, Svetlana. Thank you for doing this. I know I it's I'm sure it's been an impossible time for you. So I, sharing your story is really it's meaningful that you're willing to do it. Yeah. Thank you. We're um we're hoping that this project can convey to the world what is happening here and letting people kind of tell their personal experience. That's why I'm doing it so that people know what is war, what it does to people. This is Ukraine Stories from Fearless Media. Telling the story of the war in Ukraine, one person at a time. I'm David Green. Today's episode, Svetlana Matash. Do you, do you mind telling me a little bit about your life in Kyiv, like uh, up until February? I was born in Kyiv um, and I lived my whole life there. And um, I, I am a Polish language teacher. I work with the doctors and medical workers. Uh, I teach them medical Polish language. I also uh, work as a yoga instructor. I uh, worked a lot at home because I work online in Zoom. But I also worked a lot from cafes or coffee shops. And uh, I think that Kyiv is the best. It really has everything. I mean, it had (laughs) 
everything and I it is really something I missed the most is just my regular life sitting and drinking some kind of uh, cappuccino and working on my laptop this is was just regular you know life of a regular person so when when do you first remember that life being disrupted the first day of war the 24th of february i got up in the morning i saw that my friend called me and you know millennials they don't call <laughs> they just text <laughs> <laughs> and if someone calls you in the morning like 7:30 uh, it's just something is wrong something happened and i tried calling her back and it didn't work and i started panicking and i saw her text she wrote just war began i decided to go to my family's house and when i came there i was uh, checking the news all the time and i understood that this is it my life is over i don't know what to do where to go where is safe what decision to make i literally didn't know what to do And then two days later, there was bombing in Svetlana's district. Her brother called and said, let's get out of here. Let's get to the dacha. That's the family's little summer cabin in the village. Tell me about your time in, in the village. What, what did you and your family do while you were there? There were 10 of us because our friend's family uh, went with us too. Um, the kids were with us. A girl, nine-year-old, and a boy, 15-year-old boy. So I've, because I'm good with kids, I just decided that I'll try and do something for them, for them not to be bored. We played cards, we played these games, because I know that kids need uh, this themes not to worry and not to be afraid because uh, in the background you could hear explosions and um, I did yoga and we did it inside the house and we tried to avoid uh, going outside the house because it's it's uh, dangerous I mean on the fourth day when we were there Russians occupied our village and we just tried to stay away from the outside. How many people were in your yoga class? The little girl, nine-year-old girl, and my uh, friend's mom. She actually lost two arms in our accident. And uh, even this boy, 15-year-old boy, who actually died. He did yoga with us too. 
And so can you tell me about the the days leading up to to what you what you said was the accident? Mm, uh, we spent there like 14 days or 15 days and we were running out of food. Uh, the Russians uh, destroyed all shops. Me and my friend Roma, we once decided to go there and see what is happening uh, in the shop. And we went through a broken win- window. Like, you know, when you see this post-apocalyptic movies when everything is ruined and people are just taking everything from the supermarket it was us we didn't have electricity or internet connection and we were running out of gasoline we understood that we have four days of electricity and we didn't know what will russians do then i mean for the whole time they spent 15 days there i don't know why they just sat in our village what did they do except for robbing our shops i mean we didn't know when they run out of food too will they come to us and at the same time my friend's friend from the next to ours will village their village was occupied too and they had very, very bad. They had worse situation than we had. They killed, they raped, they robbed. So they ran and I called her and asked her how they did that. What road did they take? What villages they passed? Who did they saw? Where, where Ukrainian forces are? We asked everything. And they told us, like, uh, how they did it. They went through the field, and the field was frozen because of the cold weather. So they just went on their car uh, through this field and went to the next village, and she told me how. So we decided that we are running uh, out of our supplies. We know the road. We know that in Kyiv at that moment is for a week nothing happened. Kyiv was, was silent. So we took a vote and everyone said yes, we want to go home, we want to go to Kyiv. They made these white posters for the car that said children in Russian and Ukrainian. And they got going. They started driving. You're listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. We'll be right back. My name's Kurt Jaimungo. And this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in theories of everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. So we left there with one car 
for eight people. Oh my, it's a crowded car. Yes, and we knew that the village we need to go to, that it's not occupied and that the next village after that is uh, Ukrainian army is there. So, I mean, the moment you get to Ukrainian army, everything will be okay. You just ask the road and they will tell you how safe to go and where to go. And we needed to go through the through this uh, dangerous uh, uh, dangerous road where we knew that Russians were passing by their, their uh, tanks. There was a s- small part which was very dangerous and we, we actually passed it safe. Wow. Yeah. So how how were you feeling then when you made it past the dangerous spot? I was uh I felt thanks God I was really really happy at the moment. Did anyone say anything in the car? So the driver said check the check the map or are we going the right direction? It was like short uh, sentences, words, just to check if everything is okay on the road. And did it look okay? Yeah, it looked okay. <laughs> it looked okay. I think we drove for 40 minutes. Yeah, whenever you're ready, what? tell me about what happened. what happened next, but only when you're ready. So we uh, drove through, through this frozen field and because it's a field, it had huge holes in the ground and I don't know how much time does it, did it take. I really don't know. It's, it felt like it was forever, you know? And we came to this uh, village uh, which was supposed to be safe. And we saw houses, people houses, and in front of the house there were a checkpoint. And um, some kind of army I did. I don't actually remember, but I think it was car and like a mili- like a military vehicle. Yeah, yeah, military vehicle. I don't remember which one, uh, to tell the truth. And uh, we saw people with guns, with uh, you know big guns, mm-hmm. and we didn't know uh, if they were Russians or if they were Ukrainian army. So we just came, drove really slowly to it, to this checkpoint. And I said, oh my God, a man with a gun is coming towards us. And we didn't know who they were. And I just grabbed my phone and I just started shaking. Because we didn't know if they will start shooting us now or what is going to happen. And the driver went out of the car and my mom said, 
he has a blue and yellow fabrics on his arm and I started crying because I felt so relaxed that they weren't Russians and I thought thanks God we are alive we, we, we will be alive and the driver spoke to this man with the gun uh, they spoke for really long time i didn't i don't know i think he asked like who we are where are we coming and where are we going uh, and uh the girl on the front her mother said uh anya stand up so he could see that we have children here that we are not you know and anya showed her face like from you know, you know so he could see and the driver got into a car. He sit down and he starts the car. And they start shooting into our car. And we immediately thought that they probably shoot in someone who is behind us. But we didn't see. But the bullet hit something in the car and it didn't go well it didn't drive well so we slowly start to move to the ukrainian side and the bullets are just flying through our car for the whole time bullets were coming it appeared from russians who were firing on this ukrainian checkpoint where svetlana and the others had gotten to again something was wrong with the car and it just uh um, it it just didn't work well. It didn't go straight, and he just stopped because it stopped driving at all. I don't know how it just popped up in my mind. You know when they say if something happens, you just put your head in your knees. And I remembered that, and I started crying, head in your knees, head in your knees, and cover your head, cover your head, and uh, it was shooting all the time, this, everything was, uh, you know, the glass, Every, I just been trying to pull myself to the, uh, back to the seat in front and put my head lowest as I could. I also had my phone in my hand and I just did this. Put your phone on, on top of your head. Yeah, while I was screaming that and seated, sitting this way and pressing myself to the seat, I heard and I thought that something huge is going into an, our car. It was a brief moment. It was like one second. And I, at that moment... I'm sorry. Don't worry. Please, please, please don't worry. Take your time. I'm so sorry. I, you know, I thought that something huge is coming and orange. And that was the moment when I thought, this is, this is it. Now I'm gonna die. 
sir, I need to take. Uh, I'm okay. I'll just uh, for a minute. Yeah, take take all the time you need. This is Ukraine stories from Fearless Media. I'm David Green, and we're going to be back with the rest of Svetlana's story tomorrow. That was the episode Svetlana from Fearless Media's new podcast, Ukraine Stories, hosted by David Green and produced by Ashley Westerman. Our thanks to David Green for speaking with us and letting us feature this episode. And that's all for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, email us at podcast at foreignpolicy.com. Our show is produced by Simone Perez, Maria Jimena Aragon, and Rosie Julin. I'm Rob Sachs. Thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.